Caroline to give us uh, the opening uh, 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 keynote lecture on the other city, the city of dreams, literary utopias and literary utopias. <coughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, very oh, yeah, why not? <laughs> Always nice to start off with a bit of a buzz. Okay, I'm going. I'm going to get right to it because I don't want to run over time. Uh, am I on microphones and things? Is this the microphone? I'll stand a bit closer here, hopefully you can all see me. In his 1927 vignette, In Search of England, the journalist and travel writer H.V. Morton suggested that no man living has seen London. Having authored five books exploring the metropolis, Morton decided that the city eluded ordinary human perception and could not be conveyed by any easy representational means. There could be no singular vantage point from which to apprehend London's teeming morass of ceaseless kineticism, global trade, never-ending congestion of people, goods and vehicles, of pollution, noise, dirt and the jostling cultural plurality and pr profusion that makes up the metropolis. It wasn't possible, he reasoned, to unify such conflicting sensory impressions or what we might now refer to perhaps as sensory overload, and only impressionistic sketches might be offered as abstractions of an unrepresentable whole. This signified a distinct change in attitude towards the city since 19th century novelists had attempted to chart the bewildering yet ultimately knowable city through the textual apparatus of realism. As Leo, uh, Leo Mellor notes, uh, and I quote, in the writing of Ford Maddox Ford and H.V. Morton, the accretion of textured observations and anecdote is set against the fear of entropic anonymity, of modern London as unknowable. This marks the fault line between 20th century London writing and its predecessors. For while Victorian London could be infinitely rich, bewildering and despair-inducing, it was ultimately knowable through texts. This was not the case for the literature of modernity. It rather faced simultaneously acknowledging the importance and apparent impossibility of depicting and thus understanding modern London. So by the first two decades of the 20th century then, it was no longer possible to achieve a coherent mode of seeing London as totality. Gone are Dickens's complex plots, which draw together characters from numerous social backgrounds and offer an illustration of the life of the city. Gone too, even, is Engels' reading of the city as a case study of the barbarity of modern industrial capitalism with its slum dwellings, impoverished workers and unifying central logic of capital, or Jack London's East End People of the Abyss with their ragged, beer-sodden garments and their miserable, malodorous appearance. In the modern period of the early decades of the 20th century, when modernisms, plural, as a set of interconnected aesthetic movements transformed the way in which we represent the reality around us, London became, therefore, unfathomable, unknowable, impossible to represent as a whole. And writers confronted with this impossible task were obliged to rely instead on an array of impressionistic sketches, glimpses, details or social codes in order to conjure in the mind of the reader the city of London. And at this time, of course, various technological innovations fundamentally changed the way in which people could view the city. 
Bomber planes during the First World War, for instance, introduced an aerial perspective of the city with their violent disregard for human inhabitants and the sublime terror of the air raids. Virginia Woolf wrote an essay on the subject in the interwar period titled Flying Over London that was only actually published in 1950, and it offers the reader this aerial perspective, and I quote, Houses, streets, banks, public buildings, and habits, and mutton, and Brussels sprouts had been swept into long spirals and curves of pink and purple, like that a wet brush makes when it sweeps mounds of paint together. One could see through the Bank of England. All the business houses were transparent. The River Thames was as the Romans saw it, as Paleolithic man saw it, at dawn from a hill, uh, shaggy with wood. I want to use today's lecture then to think about this relationship between the urban and the utopian. And specifically, I want to address the question of the knowability and unknowability of city spaces within literary texts. I'm going to be primarily referring to London, but not exclusively. There are other British cities here too. I'll be focusing on an emerging caucus of 21st century British fictions that use urban settings uh, in uh, both real and imagined escapes from the city. Sometimes that's just a temporal escape and sometimes it might be a pastoral one. And what brings these texts together um, and why I think they relate so well to this idea of the unrepresentable and unknowable city is that all of these writers blend mimetic topographical detail and the locatedness of an identifiable city space with a more formally dislocating sense of ambiguity. In these fictions, characters are frequently situated in British urban landscapes then in both specific as well as indefinite ways. Many of the novels I study combine real towns and cities, whether they're named, whether they're unnamed or even renamed with this non-mimetic and also generically hybrid uh, set of narratives. And whilst these cities may be identifiable, they also slide into surreal alternate topographies of possibility, as well as of violence, predation and insanity. Maggie G's London, for example, bristles with apocalyptic menace, but also with utopian hope across novels throughout her um, writing career, from the burning book in 1985 to the flood in 2004. These alternate topographies of possibility, I'm going to suggest, speak to a re-emergence in the 21st century British novel of the utopian imagination or the utopian impulse. The present becomes malleable as redeemed pasts and anticipated futures eddy within a roiling depiction of temporal experience. And this often blurs the sacred and the secular. And a delinearized sense of time is given aesthetic expression through non-mimetic experiments with narrative voice and structure. So I'm calling them fictions of the not yet. Uh, with deferential reference to Ernst Bloch. And these are some of my writers of the not yet. As Michael mentioned a moment ago, I've been working on a whole range of authors. Not every one of these writers actually made it into the final book um, because of the restrictions of word count, unfortunately. But what I was interested in was looking at writers who were equally comfortable sampling the generic motifs and plot lines of pulp thrillers, dystopian fiction, science fiction and post-apocalyptic narratives 
As much as they were echoing the innovations of high modernism or even writing back to the classical texts of literary realism. And I think these writers and their works signal a decisive shift away from late 20th century tenets of postmodernism with its depoliticised ludic playfulness, paranoid narrators, historical reflexivity, fragmented linguistic and discursive registers. So I want to start then by just outlining um, something about the unfairness uh, that was mentioned in the title of this conference, the unevenness of contemporary life, both in political as well as in philosophical terms. Specifically, I want to think about the relationship between utopian disruptions that reconfigure the city along oppositional temporal and spatial axes and also the ideological cartography that such disruptions seek to unsettle, disturb and refunction. I'm using the term refunction from umfunktionieren, the Brechtian term, for repurposing through a collage-like process of ripping up and producing new assemblages. I want to think also of the layering of memory and, anticip and anticipatory illuminations of redeemed future times, what Ernst Bloch calls the foreshine, that the archaeological complexity of the urban landscape makes visible, with its palimpsest traces of previous architectural styles and the social worlds that contained and produced them, and that they in turn reimagined. Finally, I'd like to look at the fraught spaces and times of utopian possibilities within literary texts, which gesture towards new as well as old and pre-capitalist kinds of sociality, glinting between the habitualised patterns of everyday life under the exhausting regime of neoliberal capitalist reality, as Mark Frischer described it, but which remain anticipatory and diffuse without political organisation, and can just as easily dissipate as contribute towards a progressive social movement. As we near the end of the decade of the 21st century, a recognition of the temporal unevenness of the present time seems more pertinent than ever. So uh, a broad sense of crisis then marks the ways in which global capitalism continues to amplify inequality in the 21st century. In London, where I work, the extent of the crisis is all too visible in the social cleansing taking place on an industrial scale. The city continues to sell precious space to international property developers to build unaffordable luxury towers which sit empty despite their glinting spars and 24-hour concierge as homelessness and insecure housing drag ever more individuals and families into life-threatening destitution. Indeed, the Grenfell Tower fire of June 2017, in which more than 70 people lost their lives, became a catastrophic reminder of how little value the city's ruling elites place on ordinary Londoners. And if I sound particularly angry at this point, it's also because there's a general election taking place today of all days back in the UK. Inequality, then, is on the increase in the capital as it is elsewhere. At the same time, uh, a more specific kind of historical disarticulation has been taking place, which I think reveals the temporal unevenness in the period under discussion. As Michael Gardner suggests, the Brexit referendum in June 2016 reminds us of the way in which nationalism often appears out of time. 
He says, if the British economic underpinnings of progress point to a single temporality, then nationalism could mean local points of temporal unevenness or anachronism. The potential for questioning from the absolute sovereignty of the economy can be glimpsed in such glitches of apparently natural developmental time. Of course, literary uh, production is not anchored in this kind of cumulative developmental or national time. Works of fiction can actively reshape the material world in which the author finds herself or himself, including the ideological, ideational and experiential coordinates of space and time. So rather than simply reflecting or even mediating the anachronisms at work within the inequalities of 21st century lived experience, we find that writers and other artists are increasingly using anachronism, as Mark Fisher said, as a weapon. Laura Oldfield Ford's uh, collage text, uh, Savage Messiah from 2011, is a very good example of this that he cites. It reconstructs forgotten temporal forms and examples of previous kinds of political collectivity amongst punks, anarchists, protesters, whose previous howls of discontent against neoliberalism and its cruel programme of gentrification leave powerful archaeological traces on the London landscape, building what Michael Gardner refers to as a glitchscape, in which the formerly hegemonic national time of progress and development becomes unstuck, riven by glitches and unmoored. As I'd like to um, suggest today, the anachronistic times um, that are revealed in a number of contemporary British novels respond to and also creatively and suggestively reshape the inequalities and unevenness of 21st century social and political life. And it's my contention, uh, and I'm not alone, I would say, in saying this, that this is happening in a distinctly utopian direction. In identifying and analysing the different ways in which what I call uh, non-contemporaneity, um, and uh, as, as you may uh, notice, I'm developing this from Ernst Bloch's concept of Ungleichzeitigkeit, um, which featured in his 1935 collection Erdschaft dieses Zeit, Heritage of Our Times, or Heritage of This Time. Um, and I've worked with this idea for a number of years um, to develop it into a kind of flexible um, narrative reading strategy, if you like. So using this, I want to show how stylistic and aesthetic concerns relate to the inescapable material realities to which they respond, but also creatively reshape. Non-contemporaneity, I think, offers us a philosophical frame through which to understand the multiple overlapping and contradictory time signatures which clash and coalesce within the present moment and which the fictions uh, under discussion eloquently depict. Attuning our literary readings to the functioning of these non-contemporaneous times within the novels, I think, allows us to disambiguate the complex formal and aesthetic strategies that these texts offer for grasping the present moment. And before we go any further, uh, I'd like to insist then on a distinction between literary utopias and literary utopianism. The literary genre of utopia, um, as I'm sure this particular audience well knows, refers to narratives that imagine as well as critically reflect upon improved societies. Whether these are at the edges of the known world in the island utopias of the Renaissance period, or whether they're under the surface of the earth in the late 19th century hollow earth stories, 
whether they're set in the distant socialist future or on advanced Martian worlds thousands of years more developed than that of human civilization. And cities, as we can see from this image of um, a 14th century tapestry, it shows John of Patmos watching the descent of the New Jerusalem. Cities play a crucial role in these literary utopias. We can see that in the urtext of John of Patmos's vision, articulated in the first century book of Revelation, with its binary time of a before and an after, the present age and the age to come. It's worth recalling then that the apocalypse that we receive from John of Patmos articulates a distinctly Western time sensibility with its privileging of the future, its curious use of the future tense to narrate, uh, sorry, the future past tense to narrate the apocalypse as though it has already happened and its urban setting for the four-walled, 12-gated city of New Jerusalem. As Samuel Delaney describes in a 1990 interview for science fiction studies, he says, New Jerusalem is the technological super city where everything is bright and shiny and clean and all the problems have been solved by the beneficent application of science. Of course, the logical inverse of New Jerusalem then is the brave new world. The city where everything, he says, is regimented and standardised and we all wear the same uniform. Citing W.H. Auden here, Delaney emphasises that the difference between these two cities, these two visions of futurity, might just actually be a matter of perspective. He says the two may just be the same thing, but looked at from different angles. So the genre of the literary utopia has a privileged relationship with city spaces, as sites of imagined progress or even of perfection. In many of the canonical literary utopias, the built urban environment is emblematic of technological progress. Um, so the tree-lined boulevards, um, oh, sorry, my example here is, um, is one I'm rather fond of, uh, an 1883 text um, by the Reverend W.S. Lakzima called Illyrial or A Voyage to Other Worlds, um, which is a Martian utopia uh, as well as going off to Venus and other places. <laughs> Um, in this text, then, as you would expect of a literary utopia um, that features urban uh, sites, we find the tree-lined boulevards, the electric cars, the ubiquitous roof gardens, and the living walls, green walls, of the late 19th century utopian imaginary. And it offered the Victorian readership a high-tech utopian vision of a clean city, liberated from all of the industrial problems of smog, overcrowding and poor hygiene that contemporary London suffered from at that time. Oh, sorry. No, wait for that. Um, it's well established in utopian scholarship that the literary genre of utopia adapts itself along more critical and ambivalent lines in the 20, 20th century, um, I'm really delighted that Tom Moylan is, is here with us today. His work has been really important uh, in, in shaping my own thinking. Uh, and his scholarship on the critical utopia is a good example of this, emerging out of the oppositional culture of the late 1960s and 70s. But also I would point to Angelica Bama's work on the utopian impulse as a partial vision in 1970s feminist texts, rather than what she calls the supposedly comprehensive vision of full-blown utopias. And so works like these um, show us that the possible locations for such improved imaginary societies were becoming harder to find through the 60s and 70s period and later on into the end of the 20th century. 
I'm going to insist, however, that the literary utopia is a qualitatively different kind of text from the works of contemporary British fiction that I'm concerned with. These novels then do not depict utopian societies. They are not organised around a central narrative of discovering speculative or non-mimetic worlds. And this is where I think the interdisciplinary study of um, utopianism as a field can really help us here. And so over um, the years, reading across uh, utopian texts that have been published in political theory, sociology, feminist utopianism, and also green utopianism have really helped my thinking and have helped uh, all of us, I would say, to disambiguate the utopian impulse out of the literary utopia. And in particular, to liberate it from fixed notions of utopia as totality and the arrested utopian locus. So the narratives that I'm interested in, then, are from a broader tradition of what you might quote-unquote call literary fiction, whose utopian impulse can often be concealed or almost indiscernible. Such narratives require a critical approach that can unearth their utopian potential, and it's this approach which um, I foreground in this book. <laughs> Sorry to do the shameless self-promotion. Um, much of what I'm going to say is derived from this book, so if I don't do a very good job of explaining it today, um, please feel free to ask me a question or ask for a copy of the book. Um, in the book, I suggest that we can develop an analytical mode of literary utopianism to understand the explicit references to utopia, but also, more importantly, to excavate the hidden utopian content within narratives that do not generally appear to be utopian at the first glance. So, uh, what does this analytical mode of literary utopianism look like? I hear you cry. How does it work? And what can it tell us about texts that do not seem to be utopian at all on the surface, um, but which I would suggest make compelling arguments about utopia in other ways, structurally, formally, suggestively, or elusively? So firstly, I would say the question of scale is important to refining our critical lens to try and excavate this utopian content expressed by these novels. The um, declension of the utopian ideal over the course of the 20th century, as I just referred to uh, Tom Moylan's work um, and also Angelica Bama's work, returns us actually to utopia's renaissance beginnings in the small-scale visions of the ideal city-states. Before um, Tom had named the critical utopia, even um, I think Ernst Bloch's deconstruction of totalising utopian projects through his vast archaeology of what we might call... Um, borrowing the terms from Raymond Williams, residual, latent and emergent utopian impulses, anticipated the rethinking of utopia by, by scholars such as Louis Maran, Darko Suvin and Tom Moylan in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s. Explicitly building then a flexional concept of utopia in line with a humanist interpretation of Marxist philosophy, Ernst Bloch talks to us of the tick-tock of small-scale happiness in his discussion of the utopian potential of friendship, or even of solitude, bizarrely, <coughs> arguing that although the space of, this is my favourite bit, French happiness, uh, which, in which description he would include the good life of fireside armchairs and fine French burgundy, although this space of French happiness has the effect of scaling down block rights, it is not in the least scanty, on the contrary. So this shift of utopian possibility from that totalising level of the state 
down into the private realm of subjectivity with its plurality of scaled-down utopian moments, I think poses a different set of relations uh, regarding scale and indeed the question, uh, how small can utopia actually be? Um, although, as Maria Varsam notes, the little picture or the micro level has been underdeveloped within utopian studies, but I would suggest it's maybe making something of a comeback at the moment. This scaling down of utopias throws up crucial questions concerning the possibility of collective political agency, the relationship between the local and the global, as well as the means by which we might mediate between these different representational levels. Um, Tom, forgive me if I'm going to quote little bits of you here from Demand the Impossible. Um, as Moylan argues, we need a multiplicity of voices, autonomous from each other, but commonly rooted. So the question remains then, uh, and I take up this challenge, I suppose, or at least I hope to try to, where and how would we find such a commonly rooted alliance between autonomous voices of utopian moments of possibility scaled down to the smaller scale? Um, as I hope to demonstrate, uh, this articulation is in fact already taking place in a range of contemporary novels whose emergent formal preoccupations offer us a provocative rejoinder to the problem that Frederick Jameson described in Archaeologies of the Future when he talked about the atomized and non-communicating utopias. So this proposition then does require a refined literary hermeneutic capable of identifying these moments of possibility within the texts, uh, but then also, of course, establishing the correspondence between discrete moments. They're not just disconnected. I think we can articulate them together. Um, and in order to do this, I think we need a close examination of utopias shifting expressions of scale. In defining the postmodern, uh, Leotard referred to um, Swift's protagonist adventurer Gulliver when describing the alienating experience of postmodernity. He said, We are in this techno scientific world like Gulliver, sometimes too big, sometimes too small, never at the right scale. The postmodern required a queasy navigation of increasingly complex socio cultural narratives which shattered the single story of Enlightenment progress into a bewildering array of untethered timescales. If Gulliver is the archetype for postmodern experience, I think the reading strategies required to piece together um, the kinds of utopian moments we find now in contemporary um, literature require something similar. These novels open up reconfigured modes of temporal consciousness that retain the possibility of becoming connected through a process of uh, conceptual linkage. And this, for me, is the really important part. It moves us beyond Jameson's image of disconnected, uh, non-communicating, figurative islands. And I think it gestures towards a more tightly networked interlacing of utopian times, whose relational aesthetic suggests patterns of causal, chaotic, and beneficent interconnectivity. Um, okay, so on to method. And structure is really important here for me. Um, so my method then is to try and examine these utopian moments of possibility through three representational levels or horizons of text textual exegesis. Um, and these are in novels, as I'll show uh, in a moment, uh, that also are centrally concerned with the subjective and collective experience of living in a city. 
all of these levels, these three levels, then are inspired by my reading of Ernst Bloch. And unfortunately, I, I really don't have time to do a long lecture on Ernst Bloch, much as I would love to. I'm going to be doing one next year. But I'm hoping that all of you are going to have some kind of familiarity with some of Bloch's core ideas about the utopian impulse, about concrete and abstract utopianism, about the not yet, the noch nicht, uh, or perhaps about Forschein, the anticipatory consciousness. You might even have worked, as I have, with his theory of Ungleichzeitigkeit, of non-contemporaneity or non-simultaneity. Um, but just uh, for brevity's sake, I'll give you a couple of quotations as I work through. So our first horizon is, um, surprisingly, the horizon of death. Why not start at the least obvious place, the place where utopia appears to be most overwhelmed? Um, Bloch writes about death in The Principle of Hope, Volume 3, uh, and actually Emmanuel Levinas gave some very interesting lectures on that chapter of um, The Principle of Hope, which I use to help contextualise Bloch's thinking, uh, and I also refer to Derrida's theory of spectrality, which seems to me useful in terms of the coexistence of presence and absence simultaneously. So this first horizon, then, I would say, considers the smallest scale at which utopian times can be identified and is organised around narratives of death and dying. Um, my example here, which I'll talk to you about today, is John McGregor's If Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, a novel published in 2002, set in a Midland city like Nottingham, although it's never actually named. And this novel explores the most minimal scale through a range of lyrical, formal solutions to the problem of live time, the problem of the individual subject, and the problem of its inevitable ending at the moment of death. The novel I'm going to suggest offers us an experimental proto-utopian solution to this question of the finitude of narrative and of subjective time through miraculous times and impossible moments of utopian temporal arrest. The second um, horizon, um, you might be noticing a, a, a slightly religious theme. A lot of this would fit within um, post-secularist uh, framings of contemporary ideas, is transmigration. Ernst Bloch writes, for me, this was one of the most important quotes of all, really, in uh, The Spirit of Utopia, his expressionist work from 1918, of the contradiction between our brief time and the historical time we cannot live. If it's not possible for the individual subject to see all of historical time, what sort of philosophical or subjective or collective forms would we need in order to be able to connect uh, our atomised selves with that broader historical time? Um, and I read this section, it's in the, the final chapter, Karl Marx, Death and the Apocalypse, alongside post-Marxist theories of networked and de-essentialised community, Hart Negri, Jean-Luc Nancy um, and Leclerc and Mouffe. This second horizon, then, I think, builds on the first horizon, the, the tiny utopian possibilities in narratives about death, to construct uh, the broader horizon of the political. The metaphor of transmigration provides us with a conceptual focus here in thinking about how to conjugate the disjunct times experienced by the individual subject within broader intersubjective and collective times. Um, my literary example for this section is Joanna Cavenna's 2010 novel, The Birth of Love, which uh, is set in London. And it uses a networked or transmigratory narrative structure which connects different characters in different historical times uh, very closely with one another. 
So mediating between the subjective experience of lived time and history in totem, uh, the novels uh, within this horizon of transmigration offer us, I would say, a series of networked utopian moments that contribute, uh, importantly, I think, to political discussions about inoperative or de-essentialised community. And they give aesthetic expression to um, Bloch's contradiction. And then the final horizon of exegesis is apocalypse. And here I was drawing particularly on Bloch's writings in Atheism and Christianity, published later on in 1968, and also one of his later texts, The Philosophy of the Future, translated in 1970. Um, I'll just read you this short quote because I think it's really important. He says, wouldn't it be really absurd to maintain that the vast uni uh, universe and its motion, wholly and mediated with us in the multitude of its stars, has its continuation, pure and simple, in the existing history of mankind, so that the time of the previous history of nature would appear empty, and in contrast to the time of human history, without any noteworthy future mode of its own. What I find so striking about this passage, which I've not come across very many, if any, people really looking into, um, is that I think it, it really anticipates what we're now seeing over the last few decades in terms of developments as eco-criticism has moved into the environmental humanities, as many feminist, post-colonial uh, and um, Deleuzean kind of figures have thought about critical and anti-theories of post-humanism and of repositioning the human subject in relation to the broader ecosphere. So I use Ernst Bloch's writings to uncover um, a mode of natural historical time and specifically a mode of natural futurity. What kind of future would nature have with or without us? And how do contemporary post-apocalyptic texts help us to envision that future? This is the most totalizing scale of historical representation and post-apocalyptic frames of reference make this possible. Maggie G's The Flood is my example here. Uh, again, a novel set in London, although it's unnamed. There are real places like Kew Gardens, for example. And it blends speculative science fictional elements with mimetic literary realism. Uh, in this post-apocalyptic flood fiction, then, I think we'll find a natural historical time which dwarfs enlightenment models of um, historical progress. And these images of natural futurity give fictional density to utopian possibilities beyond anthropocentric frames of reference. Okay, so I'm going to move into... Um, my example of death. I'm going to try and take you relatively swiftly through these three literary case studies. I'm hoping to demonstrate how we can take this philosophical framework of non-contemporaneity, of, of uncovering these utopian impulses uh, at different levels of scale across these narrative texts. In his debut novel, If Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, published in 2002, John McGregor explores the possibilities for community and connection among the anonymous inhabitants of a typical British terraced street. Reflecting back on the day that the entire street witnessed a traumatic car accident, there are going to be a few spoilers here, but you've had plenty of years to read this novel, so I'm not apologising. Um, we learn, actually, in his next novel, that the, the central protagonist is called Kate, but she's not named in this text. She struggles to remember her final days as a student at the time of the accident, and she sort of has to process some very difficult emotions. Uh, the novel opens with a lyrical prelude. It's formally disjunct from the narrative that follows. There is a pause in the city's all-night 
constant crush of sound as road menders um, and factory mechanics, delivery lorries, fighting cats, night fishermen and drunk teenagers observe the briefest of silences. Okay, so I'll, I'll just read this quote for you. Everything has stopped and silence drops down from out of the night into this city, the briefest of silences, like a falter between heartbeats, like a darkness between blinks. Secretly, there is always this moment, an unexpected pause, a hesitation as one day is left behind and a new one begins. These moments are there always, but they are rarely noticed and they rarely last longer than a flicker of thought. We are in that moment now. There is silence and the whole city is still. It's referred to elsewhere in the, in the prelude as opening up some kind of rare and sacred dead time through this miracle of silence. And this arrest of time through the briefest of silences um, and the synchronic moments that compuncture what um, later becomes a kind of poetic refrain throughout the novel of the way of things, I think is really important. And it prefaces a novel which is going to concern itself with the non-linear representation of time and a vivid experience of non-contemporaneity um, felt through personal memory as well as these seemingly miraculous interventions. This ruptural dead time then is... Um, uh, relayed by Kate uh, as being a kind of moment suspended in time. I don't remember seeing it, she says, not the moment itself. I remember the strange details, peripheral images, small things that happened away from the blinded centre. The traumatic moment of absolute silence, that was the moment of the car accident that everybody witnessed, the moment that was locked like a blessing, suspends the ordinary flow of chronology or experiential time. Kate's attempts to connect these moments through this kind of process of, of the, the later um, narrative where she's revisiting the day of the accident, she's trying to remember what happened, introduces this concern with trying to connect these suspended, discrete, arrested moments, with trying to network between spatially contiguous and yet socially alienated characters living next to one another but not knowing one another's names. None of the characters, except one, are named. They're all referred to as the boy from number 18, the man from number 23. Um, in addition to Kate's perspective, McGregor utilises a cinematic third-person narrative perspective which um, sort of um, omnisciently sorry, weaves together over the course of the day the extraordinary lives of the street's inhabitants. As Jean-Luc Nancy has theorised, our challenge within an era of unbridled globalisation remains how to conceive of subjectivity as inescapably collective in its relations and experience at a time when capitalist privatisation has been matched by the philosophy of competitive individualism. I think McGregor's response to this problem of social alienation um, that the 21st century experience of globalised urban living amplifies with promises, for instance, of digital connectedness, um, and, but also of the increase, uh, increasing breakup of communities, may be summed up by what one reviewer refers to as McGregor's compassionate gaze. Um, given his comments in interview, I think we could safely argue that the novel can be read as a fictional intervention to reimagine the transient spaces of contemporary British urban life in a utopian, albeit contingent, direction. Uh, in one interview, he said, the idea that people can live next door to each other but not know each other's names seems somehow wrong, out of kilter with the way that human societies have mostly existed throughout history. 
And that pre-capitalist, older temporality, I think, is really important here. Um, with the highly visual style of narrative cinematic omniscience, um, then I think the, the text matches formal experimentation with this narrative content of the character's uh, desire to make connections with one another. And crucially, this method of connection is actuated through this central remembered event, the apparent death of a child in this car accident, which is witnessed by the entire residential street. It's a traumatic moment. Um, it's described as heavy and thick and impenetrable with things left unspoken. Um, okay, so let's take a little look at this moment. Uh, as he dies, the young Asian boy from number 19 is finally given a name, the only person to, to be given one. Watching aghast, um, they hit the, the residents hear the boy's mother tell the paramedics his, her son's name, Shahid Nawaz. He imagines what would, this is um, one of the residents, he imagines what would happen if the whole street called Shahid's name Joining with the mother's small voice, the whole street lifting the words and the words spreading through this city, taking flight like a flock of birds at dusk, clouding the sky, the voices all present across fields and forests and oceans, sent out, transmitted. The name pouring down from the sky like electronic rain across all our misconnected world, a chorus of namesaying, a brief redemptive span of attention. This moment that arrests time in which Shahad is close to death punctures the studied compartmentalization of the street's inhabitants uh, it, with such tragic profundity that that redemptive prayer of naming momentarily enfolds them all together across all of our misconnected world. Um, however, and this is where the miraculous comes in, and it's very much a novel that you can read uh, as a text of miraculous realism or a post-secular text, is that actually Shahad doesn't die. Um, he seems to die, the ambulance leaves the street without its siren on, and then, miraculously, he comes back to life in the ambulance. Uh, and it's described as an interruption in the way of things, a pause, something faint like the quick quivering flutter of a moth's rain-sodden wings, something unexpected, something remarkable. In the time it takes for a hand to be clasped and unclasped, Shahid Mohammed Nawaz wakes gently, lifted through a gap in the way of things. This, for me, uh, in addition to that lyrical prelude, is the most utopian moment of temporal rupture. Like the rare and sacred dead time that we had at the beginning of the novel that prepares us, I think, for this moment, this interruption splits open that homogeneous wall of noise in the city, metonymic for the ceaseless rush of clock time's additive chronology. Shahid is miraculously brought back to life, and the utopian content of MacGregor's temporal interruption becomes manifest through a fleeting messianic, really, aperture. It offers, as Walter Benjamin described in the theses on the philosophy of history, a moment in which time stands still and has come to a stop. There's a lot more to be said about the miraculous realism of that moment, problems of messianism, problems of agency, the fact that it just seems to be some abstruse working of time itself that resurrects this boy. It's not the kind of political will of the characters. Um, but I would also point in formal terms towards MacGregor's iterated use of the subjunctive um, throughout the text. 
The characters continually speculate and imagine alternative possibilities. They say things like, I imagined, I wondered, if she had stayed, if she had imagined, uh, I wonder if anyone else can see what I can see, what if? Um, the subjunctive tense, of course, is closely associated with utopian acts of imagination and speculation. Terry Eagleton calls utopia the subjunctive mood in politics, whilst Raymond Williams has referred to the utopian mode as that attitude which determines, he says, whether its defining subjunctive tense is part of a grammar which includes a true indicative and a true future. So with its um, fleetingly redemptive moments of connection and of alternative subjunctive possible futures, if nobody speaks, um, I think, constructs what Bertolt Scherner calls a politics of connection, a sense of community which is uh, both spontaneous but also contingent. It is appropriate, perhaps, for a novel which slides across the material backdrop of its real-world city, a British town, an ordinary terraced street, based in part on Bradford, in part on Nottingham, but deliberately left unnamed and unspecific. And it produces a phenomenological articulation of lived, lived time, which is notably anti-mimetic and even surreal in its formal representation. Okay, so moving on then, our second horizon of transmigration, our representational level of networking. Uh, and here I'm going to briefly describe uh, some key parts of Joanna Cavenna's novel, The Birth of Love. Like the modernist novels in a day, Joyce's Ulysses, Wolfe's Mrs. Dalloway, the four narrative strands of Joanna Cavenna's second novel, The Birth of Love, take place over the course of a 24-hour period, primarily set in London, but not exclusively in London. We have a mid-19th century epistolary narrative where um, Robert von Lucius is writing to a colleague about the Lazaretgasse asylum, uh, and he describes the real historical figure of the Hungarian doctor Ignaz Semmelweis, um, who is the, the man responsible for realising purpural fever could be prevented by hand-washing procedures uh, and antiseptic practices. It's then followed by the central narrative throughout um, the novel, which is Paul Bridget, 42 years old, in labour for the entire duration of this novel, giving birth to her second child at home in her London house. Meanwhile, in the same temporality across the city, we have a writer, Michael Stone, enduring a birth of a very different kind with the belated publication of his first novel. And then connected to these um, in, in some um, quite tangible ways is a future dystopian narrative set in 2153, um, a, a future high-tech city and a state interrogation with a female prisoner. So these four timelines then remind us perhaps of um, precursors like David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas and its matryoshka nested doll structure connecting these characters through space and time, but also mingling historical realism with speculative fantasy and science fiction. Kavena said that she wanted to bring uh, an experimental narrative form to bear on her own experience of childbirth. I'm going to read this to you because it is important for our philosophy of time. She says, I found birthing my own children such a moment of gory apotheosis, as if everything comes together at the point at which a new life begins. Family history, the lives of ancestors, the coincidences that cause two people to meet and birth a child, reality, fantasy, dream, and everyday life. To me, it was as if everything was happening at the same time. 
as if a wormhole has opened up. Past, present, future, fantasy and reality have merged. The author's trial during her own gory apotheosis of birth then provides her with an experience that is, of course, both unique and universal, and it draws together the timescale of all of humanity. Um, Bridget, the novel's central character, um, spending her time in labour then, gives literary expression to an ongoing feminist critique of the conceptual fallacy of modernity's singular time of linear progress. Uh, as Claire Colbrook argues, feminism has challenged the notion that one line of progressive and unfolding time precludes recognition of those who have offered other models of selfhood than that of rationally self-constituting man. And this kind of feminist rethinking is also necessarily utopian. Uh, as Claire Colbrook says um, in an article from 2009, Time, in this non-narrative conception, is not an unfolding towards a proper end that we grasp in the present, where the past might be used. Time is an open whole, where the past can always produce new potentials for new futures, which in turn also open up new pasts. Each moment of time bears the potential for a sense of the whole of time, and this is a sense and a whole that is not our own. This mode of time might also be thought of as quasi-messianic, in that the burden of the past compels us to read what the past must have wanted to say. These alternative times to capitalist modernity, um, in addition to being explicitly feminist in uh, Claire Colbrook's thinking and in Joanna Cavenna's novel, also emphasise the animal experience of human subjectivity. And I think they approach what Kristeva calls the monumental time of maternal experience, which manages somehow to construct an alternative and cyclical time outside of the linear path of patriarchal time. So by the animal aspects, um, I, I'm referring to the way in which Kavena focuses very much in real time. This is kind of unfolding second by second, this experience of the woman being in labour, um, in, in really inescapable bestial ways. She anticipates how during labour she would have, quote, her head down like a dying animal, simply trying to endure. Uh, later on, her animalised subjectivity is described in both spatial and temporal terms. She is referred to as planetary in her girth, and she is also referred to as an ancient breeding cow. So I'll come back to that in a moment, but first I want to think about connections with those modernist experiences of the unknowable city, and specifically London, with which I started the keynote. Returning to the question of the imbrication of the urban with the utopian, Bridget's experience of this alternative and ancient time to the linear clock time of modernity connects her to a kind of anti-diluvian lineage of phylogenetic human time, of the, the time of the entire species before literary... Um, before literacy, before history and so on. And it enables her to transcend outside of contemporary London in temporal terms. Of course, while she's enduring that birth, Michael is enduring his own birth, uh, the, the, the belated publication of his first novel. And he's a very strange character. He feels mystified moving through London by the thousands of humans passing through time on the underground, on the streets and so on. He, uh, he, his experiences of moving through the city distinctly and deliberately, I would say, recall the modernist time consciousness of urban experience as uh, a kind of flux. Walking along the Thames, I'll just give you a short quote, although I don't have it on my slide. 
It says, he saw them dragged, the crowds, along each morning, surging towards the underground, and he thought of them being poured into London, into their offices. And then they flooded home at five and six and seven o'clock, short and fat and tall and broad, conveyed by the current subject to its force. With this compelling imagery of flow being dragged to work, this kind of congested sea of commuters, the crowd surging and pouring like a flood, uh, the passage recalls T.S. Eliot's ghostly hordes in the wasteland. Eliot's London, you will recall, is an unreal city loaded with literary palimpsests, and the, the crowd sorry, that flowed over London Bridge recalls both Baudelaire's Paris as well as Dante's Inferno. London, the hub of imperial modernity, is rendered deathly and unreal in Eliot's poem, an unconscious flow of bodies and ideas mixing literary references and also historical timescales. And the formal devastation of Eliot's non-mimetic poetic, poetic style echoes the all-too-real bombed London cityscape of the First World War. So Michael in The Birth of Love echoes um, the wasteland, uh, but also Eliot's earlier poem, Preludes, um, and you will have recognised the, the line um, at four and five and six o'clock being echoed in, uh, at five and six and seven o'clock. And Cavenna's imposition here of incessant clock time within the flux of the London crowd brings together two poles scholars talk about when they're identifying modernist time consciousness, and those are the private Husserlian stream of experience that William James expressed in his coinage stream of consciousness and which Wolfe and Joyce used um, along with Bergsonian ideas of durée to recalibrate <coughs> narrative form. That's one pole. On the other pole then, the public time of standardised global production with its railways, steamers and timepieces. Cavenna manages to express all of this through some literary allusions and intertextual references. But unlike the poetic and narrative protagonists in Eliot and Wolfe, there is no moment of revelation for Michael, and his experience does not lead on to any kind of Bergsonian deray. Rather, like um, Prufrock, the everyman figure, he just keeps repeating, it is impossible just to say what I mean. And so we come to the structural composition of the novel, which mixes genre and pastiches styles. I'm going to skip forwards a little bit, because I've probably got five minutes. Five minutes, yeah. Okay, so we'll skip a little bit more. There's a particularly good passage I would point you towards for those Blockians amongst you, in which characters go off to an island, the whole point being that this is an escape from a dystopian future world that is very city-oriented into a pastoral, um, post-capitalist, um, kind of pre-capitalist way of living. Uh, it is described as, um, as, as really like a, a process of birth, going through um, a, a sweaty, vile crate, through a tunnel, um, and then somehow landing surprised at the other end. As these exiles move in a dreamlike noctambulation from the sweaty and vile enclosed space of the crate, we're reminded of childbirth, we're reminded of the poor Bridget <laughs> giving labour throughout the whole of the novel. But we're also reminded, of course, of the end of The Principle of Hope, Volume 3. The prisoner escaping to this island describes, quote, a landscape I had never seen before, but which I somehow recognised. And I think this gives us a really uncanny echo of the most famous lines of Bloch's Principle of Hope, when the utopian homeland, Heimat, is described as something which shines into the childhood of all and in which no one has yet been. 
Okay, apocalypse. I'll, uh, this will be my final section. Um, so I'm thinking here about that idea of natural, futural time um, and um, the problems of the totalising scale of trying to think through all of human history. Following uh, a number of um, previous kind of eco-catastrophe novels, Maggie G's ninth book, The Flood, returns her to her sustained interest in climate change and environmental futures. It's a contemporary early 2000s satire on the Bush-Blair partnership and on the intervention into the Iraq war. Um, it's uh, a book she wrote, she said, because she um, was anxious about this fear of the future, this fear of the, the, the anxiety that the future promised a destruction more complete and more devastating than that that had just been experienced. In formal terms, it's an interesting text because it... Um, it brings together many different characters she had already rehearsed in other novels, even to the point of resurrecting several characters who died in another apocalyptic event in The Burning Book. So it's been described by Mina Chilich, uh, who's written a very good book on Maggie G, as a Noah's Ark that saves her previous characters and stories from both the fictional and also the real-life flood. The most... Um, uh, stunning and um, noticeable thing I think about this text is it starts off like a kind of generic post-apocalyptic dystopian narrative. We see the terror and the havoc, we see the return of cholera, waterborne diseases and viruses and so on, and yet we have these just unavoidable moments of beauty and splendour, of utopian promise and possibility, specifically in connection with the natural world, the landscape and the new waterscape. Um, it turns out that actually the floods can make some places better. The high-rise urban slum towers um, uh, of London's dense and packed neighbourhoods um, actually become um, the view, one character says, from the towers had got better. They become aestheticised. The floods then enhance their surroundings at several points in the novel, as we can see here, for example, from this beautiful description of the drowned kingdom. Uh, various different plant and animal species have survived and even flourished since this flood. Um, the, the main point that I look at in this section really is, is again, narrative structure, formal properties of this text. Um, I think somebody in this room is going to be giving a paper about Maggie the floods. Yes, brilliant. So hopefully you'll have uh, time and the ability to do justice to this wonderful text because I'm running out of time right now. But um, the, the novel has this kind of weird extra temporality to it. That It has um, a prelude and um, a kind of coda at the end um, which sit somehow outside of time in this slightly dreamlike, heavenly kind of realm described as a city hovering above um, the darkness. Um, it's referred to as the other city, the city of dreams, uh, from which I took the title of um, my text. Seemingly messianic, a hinterland beyond both time and death. It also reminds us of Tommaso Campanella's Renaissance utopian vision, um, the city of the sun constructing an otherworldly utopian dimension um, that is spatially and temporally encoded onto the real-world cartography. The irony of this weird heavenly time outside of the narrative is that it's the most mimetic and real-life location of the whole novel. It's explicitly set on Kew Gardens. Um, it's referred to in the text, and Maggie G talks about this in an interview. So, ironically, it's the only really real, concrete, tangible London location that we have in the whole novel, and yet it's also the most um, post-secular, messianic, and kind of necro-narratorial. It's somehow beyond historical time. 
Um, and then briefly towards the end of this chapter, um, what I do is go back and look at Maggie G's um, autobiography, My Animal Life. I think she's a very um, shamefully understudied author, uh, and there are some really interesting moments um, in the novel and, and then comparatively in this text that basically rethink human subjectivity from the perspective of a broader kind of post-anthropocentric site of natural futurity. There are also modernist echoes and references to Wolf in here as well. And so the ramifications of this post-human future of natural historical time, um, I mean, at first glance, it appears to negate utopian possibility. We um, assume that humans would be the prerequisite for collective action in um, utopian political action. But actually, as the utopian scholar Vincent Gogan asks, um, this was years ago at a Utopian Studies Society conference, he gave a fantastic paper that I think he subsequently published. And he said, um, can there be a utopia without humans? He said, I'm not interested in mining misanthropic utopias of extinction, but that he did see a kind of embryonic utopian potential in what he called self-critical anti-humanism, and which now I would argue is extremely popular amongst um, scholars working in uh, environmental humanities and theories of post and anti-humanism. So the post-anthropocentric perspective that Maggie G allows us through her formal innovations, through her unusual narrative structure, recast human subjectivity from the perspective of the natural world. Um, they remind us then uh, of the possibility both of human flourishing, but it also insists upon humanity's modest place among the animal and organic environment as one life form among many. Thank you very much.